Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Before we dig into this episode, I want to remind you that August is a really important time to be following the nonprofit organization Pride and Less Prejudice. If you head over to the show notes, you will find their social media handle, and I would also encourage you to follow their free newsletter. They have some amazing things happening this month as well as next month that help us foster LGBTQ plus inclusion in classrooms everywhere. Now on with today's chat. I am humbled beyond belief to have had a conversation with the author of the book that's been talked about in so many different circles um, that I belong to for the past few months. The name of the book is The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. The author is Michelle Mijung Kim. And I, again, if you have not yet read this book, if you've not yet ordered this book, you might want to pause, head over to the show notes, learn a little bit more about it. I, I can't tell you how much this book has meant to me, how much this book has meant to so many other fellow educators. It is what I would say is one of those must-read books. Michelle Mijung Kim is a queer immigrant Korean-American woman writer, speaker, activist, and entrepreneur. She is the CEO and co-founder of Awaken, a leading provider of interactive equity and inclusion education programs facilitated by majority people of color educators, where she has consulted hundreds of organizations and top executives. So you can learn more about Michelle by heading over to the show notes. You can follow her. But most importantly, again, folks, please do check out this book. If your school or your learning institution is looking for a community-wide book read to share, I don't think I can think of a better text than this one. So join me in welcoming to the show, Michelle. There is an absolutely wonderful fireside chat that is on your YouTube channel. Listeners, I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes because I just I think it's such a wonderful follow-up extension resource for anyone who has read your incredible book. I know many listeners of this show will have done just that. The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. And I appreciated in that conversation you mentioning that you've really chosen to focus on responding to folks who you are in community with. I'm sure you've received an overwhelming <laughs> response to the book. Um, and now that we're almost um, a year out from the one year anniversary of your publication date, congratulations on that. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a big milestone. From those exchanges, were there any new questions that you found yourself mulling over as um, friends and colleagues and peers reached out to discuss the work with you? Um, I think the questions that I ask in the book are continuing to be relevant for me in my own life. The questions around how we actually build real solidarity beyond performative unity to how we truly understand the ways in which that we relate to one another in order for us to be all on the same page. Because even after the book has come out, what I continue to observe in the world, in our society today, is that you know, there are so many fractures, even within the, you know, our side of the people, right? And we continue to um, face challenges and tensions that are not gonna be solved overnight. So the same questions around how do we really be in community with one another? How do we 
embody some of the values and principles that I talk about in the book um, and not just for other people, but for myself. So I think those questions continue to evolve and get asked of me um, on a day-to-day basis. So I think that, you know, also something that has been new for me uh, since the book came out is people's reaction to the book being one of surprise that I was able to share so many of my personal stories. I don't think that's what people typically expect of, um, you know, DEI books. I hate calling my book that because it feels like it's so much more than that because it has so much of my, you know, uh, experiences of lived experiences and also in social justice organizing. Um, But I think a lot of folks were surprised by the level of vulnerability in the book. So the question has been for me around how we really make the work that we're doing in different spheres of influence about humans and about people and about our lived experiences and how we um, begin to humanize the work more versus something that people have become so accustomed to looking at as strategies or best practices or frameworks. And we somehow forgot this human aspect to this work, which is at the core of it. Um, And also some of the questions I've been mulling over is what have been my boundaries around sharing some of these stories? I made some of these decisions more more intuitively versus having like a list of principles to go by before I share my stories, uh, if you will, when I was writing this book. And uh, I think about those questions that come from other writers around how I made these decisions to share some of these really vulnerable stories. Um, and I don't have a clear answer, but I, I, I wanted to be honest in the book. I wanted to be, um, I wanted to model the vulnerability that I'm asking of people when they are coming to this work. So I think those are the things that I've been answering for myself. It's like, oh yeah, how did I make these decisions? How did I draw my boundaries when it comes to sharing some of the stories that are so sacred to me? Um, and how do I feel about lots of people reading them now and reacting to it? Uh, so those are some of the you know newer questions that have been coming up for me. Thank you for for sharing that because I you know for me that honesty and that vulnerability and that willingness to sort of say you know even though I am thought of as an expert as a thought leader this is something that I have to work on myself too, really resonated with me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you, you, there's a passage where you reference how we have to really get more comfortable with this notion of apologizing and not apologizing so that we are granted forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I really just, I think there's real value in talking about these are things that we need to rehearse and keep doing. And you never came at it from the standpoint of, you know, I just do this all the time and it's easy. Um, right. So, <laughs> um, I, I really just appreciated that leaning into, of course there is tension, but that's also where there's where there's growth. So thank you for sharing those stories. And we'll talk about, um, I love the, the hidden story section. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, the book is comprised of, of four distinct sections. It feels really significant to me that the the final section is moving together. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit more about the organizational structure you used. I'm wondering if there was some 
you know, creative debating that you need to have with yourself. Um, or again, maybe I'm wrong and you knew immediately this is the order of the sections and it all just came together um, like that. I wish. <laughs> no, it wasn't the case at all. Um, in fact, the way that I wrote was quite chaotic. <laughs> um, I wrote down all of the lessons that I've learned while doing this work. And uh, I still have the Google Doc uh, that I, I think is around like 75 pages of just bullet points of things that I've learned, little anecdotes that I wanted to share. Um, and I started just writing to capture some of these principles. Um, and so then th those principles became the chapters themselves. And sometimes I would combine two chapters into one. I would have to, you know, I would start writing a chapter and it'd become really, really long because I had apparently a lot of things to say about that particular principle. Um, and then once I had all the chapters in front of me, then I had, I started grouping them and uh, really thinking about the learning journey that I went on, but also what I've learned through facilitating some of these conversations and workshops inside organizations and thinking about the arc that I wanted people to get, go into. And it really mirrors the allyship framework that my company has around how we need to create change within ourselves first. So intrapersonal coming first and then interpersonal, organizational, and then systemic. So I think that the book's arc kind of mirrors that too, right? We have to begin the work within ourselves by understanding our identities, understanding and challenging our desire to be seen as good people um, and getting outside of that binary so that we can actually allow ourselves to grow and learn and be expansive. Um, and then learning about the context, because a lot of times I think people jump into this work without a lot of the foundational fundamental historical and societal context and developing the muscle to be able to analyze context in a way that feels critical um, so that you can adapt your approach to switching conditions that are always changing. Um, so that's why the second sort of part is all around understanding the context and getting grounded um, by getting reoriented, if you will. And then, you know, the, the third part um, is really about how we show up to this work with more of the practical um, principles, whether it's around giving ourselves permission to make mistakes, but also understanding the importance of proactive accountability, um, not coming from a place of shame and fear, but from a place of wanting to stay in alignment with our values and wanting to be the people, be the person that we want to be, that we say that we want to be, right? Um, and the sort of the tactical steps of how we hold space for one another or the importance of focusing on our healing as much as we are out there dismantling stuff. Um, how do we also prioritize the healing aspect of this work so that we can be sustainable? And then the last part, as you mentioned, is moving together. How do we do this outward once we have done the alignment work um, simultaneously too? How do we also then extend this beyond pontification? How do we extend this beyond theories to actually creating change in our spheres of influence? And I try to be really deliberate about um, the action part of it, because sometimes I think it's easy for us to theorize and intellectual intellectualize this work versus really embodying it outside in the world and the day to day that we're living in. Um, so that's, you know, what 
for me, really culminates this journey, the learning journey, um, and beginning the practice with one another so that we also know that we're not alone in doing this work because this work, as we talked about, can get very messy, very challenging. And through the contradictions, through the conflict, we need to be able to be in community with one another to sustain this work. Um, hence the, the moving together part coming last. Yeah, the, the, the rhythms of the book, as you've just depicted, it really was, I just, I applaud the way that you curated that. Um, it really, it's sort of, there was learning there were sort of like almost two spheres of learning that way. Um, so, so sort of thank you for that and for letting us know. I love the idea that it started with a Google Doc and it started with <laughs> chaos. is very beautiful as well. Um, for anybody who's listening to this conversation, who's thinking I need to pause, go order the book. Great. While you're waiting for the book to arrive to your door or to your library, the great news is, um, of course, you're you're sharing thinking on medium as well you have a huge following i know that your work has also been awarded in that space and i wanted to return to a post of yours from 2020 i'll also be sure to link this over in the show notes it's entitled how to lead when you're are, when you are afraid and in that post you outline four ways that leaders can practice thoughtful leadership i appreciate again mirroring what you just said that first step is to check in with yourself might you share with listeners what you have found to be useful approaches in taking that step of of checking in with self? Yeah. And I feel like the checking in with self is just the fundamental step that we always need to take in whatever context, whether you are leading while you're in a state of fear or when you have made a mistake and you're freaking out and you're about to go down the shame spiral, which happens quite often for me as somebody who suffers from anxiety and depression. Um, checking in with myself has been a practice that I'm still learning and something that I'm trying to be conscious about. And it's hard because it doesn't come naturally for me. It doesn't, it's not an intuitive, habitual practice that I grew up with. And I think part of that is because we live in a society that doesn't ask marginalized people to really pay attention to how we're doing, right? We live in a society where um, the pressure of doing is so much greater than for our need to just be. And I, as a woman of color, as, a, as an immigrant person who grew up low income, as a queer person, the practice of asking myself how I'm doing and uh, what I need in this moment is not something that people taught me. It's not something that I consciously practiced growing up. Um, and even in social justice work, even in DEI work, I think the norm is for us to celebrate our caring for other people first and uh, the, the martyrship or our sacrificing our needs in order to support other marginalized communities, I think is the model that we are constantly being taught as being superior over, you know, our caring for ourselves. And I think that all of those things can coexist at the same time. And I am thinking about the ways in which that we care for ourselves, as Audre Lorde so eloquently put, as a political act. And for me, what I've learned as I was leading a company, as I was, you know, 
um, as a, as head of a company and organization in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of an incredible amount of demand for anti-racism work at the height of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the anti-Asian uh, violence uh, that was occurring in summer 2020, I became incredibly burnt out. And I realized that the way that I was doing this work was repeating the pattern of violence in which I became expendable. And that thought was really eye-opening for me in terms of as somebody who's doing this work in service of all marginalized communities, including myself, what does it look like for me to actually model the level of gentleness and care and love that I have for other people towards me? Because I too, as a marginalized person, am worthy of that. And so it's not as simple as slow down and chicken with yourself because you need to, you know, pour into your cup before you can pour into others. Um, I want to go a step beyond that and make it into a political orientation that we practice, the caring for ourselves, the gentleness that we practice, the compassion that we practice for ourselves is what is required to unlearn some of the toxic patterns that we've been taught to embrace that makes us unworthy of rest, respect, care, dignity, humanity, right? And we are trying to rewire that in our own brains and let us know that actually we are worthy of all those things, whether we're doing something or not. For just existing, we are worthy of care and love and gentleness. So for me, checking in with myself consistently is the reminder that requires that reminder of why I'm needing to do that work. Um, beyond, you know, I need to check in with myself so that I can serve other people better. <laughs> but I am checking in with myself because I too am worthy of care and gentleness inside the society that tells me that I don't deserve it. That's so powerful. And, you know, I, I think about the the community around this podcast, being educators and how our our students and our scholars who work with us they're really paying attention. And I know so many folks working in education who are also experiencing burnout, as you've mentioned. Um, and I wonder, and I question sometimes when scholars consistently see those who are part of their learning ecosystem have that fatigue and not necessarily um, access that level of care, the messages that we are sending about what learning is or yeah. what, you know, what the pace of learning is meant to do. Um, so I, I just think it's a, it's a great conversation to keep having. And, and I appreciate you pointing out that it doesn't come easy, that it's something that we continually need to, um, to think about very carefully um, because it does matter. And I really appreciate you saying it's not a check-in for others, you know, so that we may help others better, but um, it is valid and um, it's necessary just because yeah. and that we don't need to earn it. Um, that's, that's really right. important. I'm still unlearning it. And I, I you know, know that it's also hard to do, not just because I'm not in practice of it 
all the time or because I'm not, I've not been taught, but also because the systems make it really difficult for us to practice it and to prioritize it. Right. And I have a very soft spot for educators out there um, who are doing the incredibly challenging and honorable work of educating our young people um, and the predicament that folks are being put in, in order to you know, balance it all and the exploitative nature of how sometimes we use the beneficiaries of our work um, to justify you deteriorating, <laughs> right? It's for the movement or for the children. Mm-hmm. And yet um, I think that distracts from what is really happening, which is the exploitative systems that we need to be aiming at, right? We need to be questioning and challenging the systems that are making us choose between our care versus the movement or our care versus the education that we're providing um, the, ch- uh, the, the children or the young people. So I want us, I mean, this is the reminder I have in the book where in order for us to actually prioritize our healing, it's not just the individual work that we're doing, but also looking at what is making the conditions impossible for us to heal in, right? If we are continuing to experience the same trauma over and over again, or the same kinds of burnout over and over again, because of the exploitative uh, conditions that we're working in, then the healing that we're seeking becomes more and more difficult for us to attain. So part of this work and part of recreating the narrative around healing is looking at the conditions um, and l- are all of us working together to create that condition collectively so that we can heal while we're doing the work at the same time. I appreciate you saying that. And I, I think it's worth me mentioning that this book is such a useful entry point into having that really complicated conversation of of looking at systems, of looking at self too. Um, so again, I, I know that there will be some folks listening and thinking or coordinating some of their book-wide book clubs. And I honestly, you know, in all sincerity, Michelle, I cannot think of a better book than than yours for that. Um, you. you're, you're welcome. I mean, again, thank you for, for creating this work. I'd love to close our conversation with a reflection on the third chapter of, of your book, which is entitled Wake Up to Your Hidden Stories. Could you talk a bit more about the concept of the hidden story and how you learn to engage with it? Yeah. Um, So the hidden stories is a concept that talks about the stories that we haven't actually lived, but are part of our stories anyway, Um, or part of our entire narrative, rather. And uh, I give very specific examples because I think that's what illustrates this concept the the best um, from my own life where, you know, when people ask me, tell me about yourself, tell me about your story. It's easy for me to remember the stories of me overcoming certain challenges as a woman, as a person of color, as a queer person, you know, as a low-income person um, who grew up low-income with an undocumented father, like all those stories are so vivid in my memories. And those are the the ways that I tell my, you know, hero's journey story, right? Like these are the struggles that I've had to overcome and they, really contributed to me being the person that I am today. But the stories that I don't remember are also just as valid and also are part of my arc 
that I need to be conscious about. And those are the stories that I call hidden stories, the stories that we haven't lived but are part of our identity nonetheless. Um, so these are things like, you know, I remember growing up um, low income and not having access to health, uh, health insurance for over four years in high school and being really, really nervous about that and working, starting working at the age of 14 and a half to make ends meet and to support my family and to put myself through college. But what I don't ever have to think about is the fact that I never struggled with getting a job because I was a documented person because no one challenged my abilities based on my, you know, physical or mental abilities. That's a hidden story, right? Um, I remember being called a dyke in the street when I was holding a girl's hand. I remember people staring at us when we were on a date and making out or holding hands. But I, what I don't remember is ever having to worry about being pulled over by a cop and not ever being able to make it to the date because I am not a dark-skinned person. I'm not a Black person. I am not uh, readily assumed to be a criminal or a terrorist because I'm a light-skinned East Asian person. That's a hidden story. So these hidden stories are birthed by our privileges. And I think sometimes when people think of the word privilege, it is so heavy, it is charged, it gets all um, kinds of defensive reactions from people because it's something that I think a lot of people are conditioned to think as something that diminishes their accomplishments or dilutes their challenges that they had to overcome. But for me, the term privilege over time has become this word that is so, that's associated with this feeling of relative ease and levity. It's the burdens that I never had to worry about or carry because the challenges that I had to deal with were different. They don't diminish any of the challenges that I've had to live and overcome, but they coexist with my marginalized identities. So being able to hold that complexity and understanding that we actually all have the capacity to hold these multiple truths at the same time and being able to acknowledge our hidden stories is such a fundamental part of us being honest about our stories and being able to see our life, our lives in a much more holistic way that enables us to connect with our work and our community in a much more authentic, honest, and critical way that I found to be important in interrogating throughout my life. And I'm continuing to uncover these hidden stories as I'm learning about new um, uh, new types of social injustices, right? So that's in a nutshell, hidden stories. <laughs> I, again, I, I really, that that section of the book resonated so deeply with me. And I, I always appreciate when thought leaders like yourself remind us of the significance of lived experience. Um, you know, sometimes I find books can be really prescriptive and, you know, what have you been taught or what have you studied? Or, you know, as you mentioned, the danger in just intellectualizing the work. And I think leaning in to the curiosity about our stories and our hidden stories is, is really powerful in just remembering they are so, so valuable um, and making that time to think, to share, uh, to keep questioning them it is again just i really really appreciate that section of the book so thank you for writing it um, thank you for reading it <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners again it's um it is a book that i think you will want to reread as soon as you finish it 
um, again, make sure that your local library has copies of it stocked up. It's it's one of those few books, Michelle, that I think regardless of the work that you are doing, as you mentioned, this is also a book that is so meaningful for us as as just human beings. Um, you know, occupation aside, yeah. it's very, very useful for so many different industries. But I think just in terms of being in relationship with our family, our friends, there's such value to it. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing and um, just an early happy, uh, happy second year of the book being out there in the thank universe. You. Thank you. I'm also excited to share that um, I just learned that my paperback version is coming out in March of 2023. So it's we have some time, but it's going to include discussion guides that folks can use to have more conversations about some of the things that I talk about in the book. And so I'm excited to share that with the world. Hopefully we can all celebrate that um, when the time comes too. Great. Thank you again so much. Again, the book is The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. Um, it's It's been one of the, the most meaningful books, I will say, that I feel like I've read just lifetime. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Listeners, you can head over to the show notes to learn all about today's amazing guest. Thank you again so much for listening and being in community. Until next week, take care.